This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Brad Stone. He works for Bloomberg and he is the Amazon expert with a definitive book on Amazon, The Everything Store, and he's got a brand new bestseller, Amazon Unbound. Brad, glad to have you here. Bob, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Okay, you talk in the book how you got access. How did you get all this access when you write negative things about Amazon? Well, look, I mean, I, I don't view myself as a, as a critic of, of the company. I'm I, almost a historian. I'm trying to tell the story, and that's both the accomplishments and the real reasons to scrutinize the company. But um, just to back up, you know, I wrote a previous book about the company, The Everything Store, in 2013. It was the origin story. Jeff Bezos didn't particularly like it. You might recall some, some negative reviews from his family members and close colleagues. Yes. But- Yes, right. Um, but but you know, over the years, it's it has become, I think, the definitive history of the company. And when I reconsidered, you know, whether there was more story to tell in 2017, I approached the company. I said that I felt like you know the 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 last decade had been, if anything, more interesting than the than the original uh, you know 15 years, and that I wanted to write another installment. And I also think, Bob, that. Amazon changed. It was. It had been a very secretive, cloistered uh, company up there in Seattle, and to some, in some, in many respects, it's still very secretive. But I think there was an understanding that if they didn't tell their story, if they didn't allow journalists to tell their story, then that wasn't going to go very well for them. And so, you know, they they did allow me to talk to fifteen or so senior executives. Be- Bezos so didn't talk to me. There there are some still some wounds there, perhaps from the first book, but. You know, I got I got a lot of access, and then the foundation of the new book is really just the volumes of interviews with employees who have come and gone, or still there, talking, um, you know, on, on background, sharing what they what they saw, what they think of the company, their and their experiences, the things that they're proud of, and the things that they you know wish the company did differently, and that's really the foundation of both books. 
Now that the book is out, what has the reaction been from inside Seattle, Amazon, HQ, et cetera? Well, there are no one-star reviews, so I, I, I suppose that's nice. Um, there, there really has been no official reaction. I, I will say informally, I've heard from employees and executives of Amazon who who feel like that you know that the story that I got the story right that it accurately captures the the innovation that went into products like Alexa, the determination of Bezos but also the way in which the company has built some systems such as the global marketplace and the transportation network, maybe without a lot of regard for what some of the uh, consequences might be. And then if, and we can talk about that, but then if they've had to go back and kind of repair some of those and the way in which the company has kind of graduated into a whole new realm of scrutiny and skepticism uh, and Bezos in particular, I think has come under a, a lot of that criticism. So, you know, may, I'm probably not hearing the bad stuff, but for what I have heard from, from employees and executives has, has been favorable. Well, usually you always hear from an employee that you got something wrong, whether you did or not. They, you right. know, they and have I've that, heard, uh, I have gotten, I've gotten a couple of those. I should. Oh, okay, just making sure. sure. So what we know is that Bezos will be stepping down, and the new person coming in, Jassy, made his bones in AWS. To what degree, A, do you think this will change the company, and B, to what degree do you project that Bezos will still be involved? So the the changeover date they've announced is is July fifth, and that is when Jeff Bezos will no longer be CEO, and and Andy Jassy will be. But in in many respects, Bezos has been pulling away from Amazon for many years, and that's part of the story that I'm telling in this book. He buys the Washington Post. He's fighting with the Trump administration. He has his tangle with the National Enquirer. And of course, the formation of philanthropies, and he's allowing Andy Jassy and the executives on the retail side to run these massive Amazon businesses with a lot of autonomy. And and so that's been a gradual process, and I think it'll continue to be a gradual process. Bezos is executive chairman. He says he's going to continue to work on new projects at Amazon. He said in his last investor letter that he's going to be rethinking Amazon's relationship with its blue-collar employees and trying to make that a kinder relationship. And so I suspect that not a lot actually changes. Uh, Andy Jassy will certainly be the figurehead. He'll be, I think, maybe to the consternation of, of regulators and lawmakers. When they ask for Jeff Bezos, they will get Andy Jassy in much the same way Google now gets uh, presents Sundar Pichai and, and not the founders, Larry Page or Sergey Brin. But I think Bezos will continue to be involved, and I think, but I think the process will continue gradually. And in a couple of years, we might see him drop the executive part of that title, executive chairman, and then really move on to other things. But I don't, I don't think much actually changes at Amazon, other than the very public and visible figure of Andy Jassy taking over as CEO. To what do you th- degree do you believe these changes were engendered by his relationship with his new girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez? In terms of the the his his departing well, on a lot of levels, but here talking about stepping down, I don't think so. Again, part of the story in this book is is Bezos stepping away from the big businesses in Amazon, and that process was underway before the relationship started. So, I don't know if it was a precip- precipitating factor in the timing. I, I will say in the book, I revealed that Bezos is building this massive super yacht. Uh, to sail the high seas, uh, my suspicion, because he was never a yacht guy, that that is the the you know 
part of the influence of his partner. Um, and so his evolution into a, a, a famous figure, someone who's turning up at courtside at Wimbledon or partying on the yacht of, of Barry Diller, or David Geffen, that that is in part the influence of, of Lauren Sanchez. He, is, he has been taking helicopter flying lessons. There's a lot of things, I think, that um, maybe she has influenced him. But in terms of the CEO role, I think this was probably all, always in, in, the, in the long-term plans. And Andy Jassy has been, in some ways, as close to a disciple as you can get. He was Jeff Bezos's TA or shadow, basically his chief of staff now 20 years ago. And he has been in the AWS business, but he's also been a member of the S team, Andy Jassy, which means he's weighing in on every big decision that has been made at the company from the acquisition of Whole Foods to the decision on where to put HQ2. So it's not like Jassy's really been a stranger to this bigger part of Amazon, the retail side. He's, he has been quite involved in it. Okay, let's just staying with this Lauren Sanchez changes. You know, that blew up. It became a tabloid issue. You certainly cover that in the book. But the divorce he, that Jeff had with Mackenzie was relatively smooth, and she's even gotten remarried, and Bezos has not, whereas Gates, the whole situation blew up and is continuing in the news. Do you feel that from the company's perspective, Bezos' perspective, the business and world perspective, and those could be multiple viewpoints, that this is now in the rearview mirror, or are people still judging him for this, and there might be another few shoes to drop? I think folks have pretty much moved on, and it might have been it's, it might be a symbol of his absolute sort of mastery of the levers of public relations in that he he so swiftly put it behind the, him and vanquished his rivals. If you remember, Bob, the editor of the National Enquirer who published that story um, was fired afterwards. You know, Bezos wrapped himself up in the mantle of the Washington Post, used the, the Saudi enmity toward the Washington Post uh, and t- towards his ownership of it as, as kind of a, a weapon and imputed political motives to the Enquirer. And as I show in the book, there really weren't any uh, the inquirer was was writing about uh, writing a story that Lauren Sanchez's brother had had given him and trying to embarrass the wealthiest person in the world but Bezos really turned the tables on them he he posted that famous medium article uh, he accused them of extortion and the Southern District of New York investigated it the FBI investigated it and 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 moved on didn't didn't really find anything so but are there other shoes to drop I mean I want to approach this topic with a little bit of humility. It is such a crazy topic. The cast of characters you can't even fathom is so bizarre. It's a hall of mirrors. I concluded, based on the information that's in the court filings, based on people that I talked to, the testimony of the reporters and editors at the Inquirer, that it really was Michael Sanchez delivering them the text messages and some images in the fall of 2018, and that's how they got the story. But if you're asking, could... Could we find out something unfathomable about the Saudi government's hack of a cell phone tipping off the paper or some Trump world connection that we we can't possibly guess? I would say it's improbable, but I want to leave open the possibility for it. And I, I hope hopefully do a little bit in the book because this story has taken so many twists and turns that you don't know. But I would say if something else emerged, it would probably contradict the information and the timeline that we already have 
established in the court files, where the editors and reporters of the National Enquirer say in September 2018, Michael Sanchez approached them with this tip, and they knew nothing about it beforehand. And in fact, afterwards, have to, had to kind of read into the tea leaves because he wasn't being explicit. So this idea that perhaps they were tipped off separately by the Saudi government would be surprising. It would, it would contradict a lot of the established evidence. Let's go back to Bezos and him splitting from the company. In the book, he is really the driving force for innovation. He is the one who's pushing the envelope with the moonshots. He's actually in space, but I'm using that in a business sense. Do you believe he will continue to play that role? And to what degree is that the culture of the company such that if he's not doing it, someone else might? It's a great question. And, and in the book, I am telling the origin stories of products like Alexa and, and the ghost store, those cashierless supermarkets. And they all start, they typically start with a Bezos idea. Uh, in fact, the, the Alexa project starts with an email from Bezos to his deputies. We should build a $20 computer whose brains are in the cloud that's completely controllable by your voice. And I have the first Bezos whiteboard drawing of the product that becomes the, the Echo or, the, or an Alexa. And so when you peel back the layers to a lot of these projects inside Amazon, not only do you often find a, a Bezos idea, but you find that it was his sponsorship, his maniacal attention, his willingness to invest uneconomically in the seeds of an idea and then to and then to follow through spending money losing money risking failure that is kind of key to the inventiveness at Amazon and i think you put your finger on on something interesting and real they would say they would preach that Amazon has a culture of invention, that it's decentralized, that employees can move quickly on their own. It's the land of a thousand CEOs. It's all by design. But I just really wonder if in terms of at least minting new product categories, once Bezos really does step away, and again, that might not be for a couple of years, he, he's executive chairman, he'll be involved. But once he really does step away, will Amazon have the same ability to strike fear in employees to go pursue big things, and then obviously competitors when they enter new markets. Well, historically, you know, individuals make a difference. They can't be quantified. You can get a manager who's an MBA, but someone who's an entrepreneur, that tends to be a, a unique character. But staying with the company for a second, for years, their financials were not good. We're going back almost 20 to see the worst numbers. To what degree is the company playing to the street at all? Back in 1997, when, when Bezos wrote that first letter to shareholders, he, he kind of called his shot. He said, we're not going to really pay attention to short-term metrics. We're not going to focus on profitability. We're going to run the company for market share and cash flow. And that promise and the patient investors that it enlisted got them through many, many tough years. And in fact, as I write in the book, even in 2015, Amazon was either losing money or not very profitable. And Steve Ballmer went on the Charlie Rose show and said, it's not a real company, Charlie. You've got to make money. That's my Steve Ballmer impression, uh, Bob. Um, maybe need some work. And it was because not that Amazon was unprofitable. It was almost hiding its profits. It, Bezos was taking the winnings from the retail business, the winnings from AWS, and funneling them into Alexa and China and India and Prime Video. And that all paid remarkable dividends. And I think 
recently, it's an extraordinarily profitable company. The stock price has zoomed up. It's worth $1.6 trillion. And no, I don't, I don't, but I don't think the operating posture of the company has changed. I don't think they particularly pay attention to, to quarterly numbers. I mean, they've got a pretty professional CFO and finance staff that seems to be good at making projections and then exceeding them. Um, but look, Amazon doesn't provide a dividend. It doesn't buy back its own stock, right? It's not doing the things that would please more short-term investors. It's, it really is. It continues to take its its profits and build more fulfillment centers and buy more prime video. It's buying the MG, MGM and the catalog there, build more data centers. And basically, Amazon's winnings go to fund more Amazon. So it's unlike a lot of other companies. It's still incredibly optimistic about the future. And clearly, it has not achieved whatever maturity or end goal that it has for being ubiquitous. Now, one thing you go deeply into in the book is the organizational structure. You know, Bezos basically has the guy who shadows him. Sounds like a low position, but it's really a privileged position. There are committees. You move up. For those who are uninitiated, can you please describe the structure? Okay. Well, so – the, the technical uh, title is uh, the technical assistant, uh, and Bezos ha- had one. He, he actually hasn't for a couple of years, which might have been a sign that he was ready for this CEO transition. But the other, S- the other members of the leadership team, the S team, they all have their TAs. And, and the S team well, well, so is— So everybody the, there, yeah. I didn't know, everybody there has a TA too. How far down the totem pole does that go, or is that it? <laughs> I, I believe it's just the the the, uh, the SVPs, the senior vice presidents, and maybe not even all of them. But it's my understanding that the 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 upper echelon of the company they all have TAs. So, for example, Beth Galetti, uh, the senior vice president of HR, she has a, a, a technical assistant. Andy Jassy, as the head of AWS, had a TA, and of course, will have one a CEO. So. That's interesting. It's a way in which I think Amazon train. It's almost a leadership, an informal leadership training program where chosen executives just get bathed in the, you know, the mechanics of the senior leaders and the leadership committee at Amazon. So it's a tr- it's an interesting training program. But you know, think of Amazon. I, I guess as a little bit of a conglomerate. So many disparate businesses, right? So much surface area to this company. It's all. It almost makes it hard to categorize. But a, a senior vice president, you know, tends to kind of oversee one or, or several of these business units, and and they run pretty autonomously. The, it, again, the land of a thousand CEOs, they call them single-threaded leaders. A leader of, a, of the team is like a little CEO of his own group, and they've got a lot of autonomy. But they report, they push up reports in, up through the organization, and those have metrics and operating plans. Um, competitive analysis, and all those reports filter up to the S-team. Oh, and by the way, Bob, you're probably familiar that all meetings, all deliberations at Amazon start with these six-page documents, right? It's a very right, it's a writing culture, an editorial culture. And so the documents flow up, and then the, the senior leadership team, obviously, they make the big strategic decisions, but they also push goals. They're called S-team goals down through the organization. So a, a, a small team in Amazon Fresh, the grocery delivery service, and this is an example from my book, might get a goal to go and produce a eclectic product. There, there, I have an example in, in the book called the single cow burger. And in fact, a, a team gets this directive to go produce a single cow burger or a burger made from the meat of just one cow instead of a hundred uh, and to do it 
you know, by, by the next quarterly review. And that's how it works. And there are hundreds of S-team goals and they push down and then the teams proliferate and, and they, they report their progress upwards. Now, we've seen a lot of history, unfortunately, in the last couple of decades with these multifarious companies having these goals. And then the people at the bottom or in the middle are so busy getting the goals that they throw their morals right out the window. Wells Fargo being the best case. Because rather than, you know, say, wait a second, this is wrong, it's unachievable, they say, if I want to move up the company, I want to get my bonus. So how does that, you know, is that a factor you think at Amazon? Absolutely. And in fact, that this, the history of the company is replete with low-level executives in fear for their jobs, desperately trying to meet their goals, moving fast, and getting getting into some trouble. Um, there's a great example in the book with the marketplace segment. In the in the well, actually, it's it's in the consumables segment. So the the fresh groceries and other other products that you might find at a drugstore or a supermarket, and and they're running the private label division. So it's it's their job to go create Amazon Basics batteries or Amazon Essential diapers or Solomo potato chips, and essentially they start peeking at the data from the third party sellers to see independent sellers on Amazon what's doing well for them. Maybe Amazon should copy it. And of course, that has now uh, put Amazon at the center of all sorts of questioning in front of the U.S. Congress and the and the EU, and and it's arguably violated some antitrust laws. Well, we'll see. And Amazon has said, well, there's a policy against that. The people shouldn't have been managers shouldn't have been doing it. But I think to your point, it's a decentralized culture with big goals and a culture of fear. And you know, when 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 you create that environment, um, bad things can happen. For those who've worked for Amazon. I'm not talking about those in the warehouse, but those working in white-collar positions, they portray a terrible culture where they're working around the clock, there's fear, there's expendable. It's the opposite of some of these other companies that, you know, put them in a blanket and make them feel warm. Is that your experience? 1.2 million people work for Amazon. There, there, it, I, I think it's just honest to say that there is a wide variety of, of experience and there are people that will sing the harmony of Amazon and, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and loved it there and they were there for years. And, and then there are a fair number of dissidents and you hear different things. You know, the executive environment in the white collar offices and then the the warehouses you want to talk about the warehouses uh, predominantly not yet let's just stay with white collar okay. we'll go back to yeah. the warehouses well uh, look i mean there are there there are many people that have left there with a lot of pride and then there are people and i i profile a couple of them in the book who felt like it was a cruel culture that they gave more than they got that they didn't particularly end up admiring Bezos or the or the leadership team there. I, I profiled the woman in this book who who ran the first Prime Day in 2015, and she came to sort of think that like here she was sort of engaged in selling people you know Instapots and other appliances that perhaps they didn't need in a kind of frenzy of discounting. And, and the other thing that she really took away from the experience was she had gone to Herculean lengths to get this thing out the door in 2015, the first Prime Day. And, you know, afterwards, they presented a, one of these six-page documents that kind of highlighted everything they did wrong. And so it wasn't a culture of celebrating success. It was a, this, this just really driven culture of how do we get better? How do we fix the errors that we made? And she found that thankless, and she, she found the culture – 
uh, somewhat difficult. And and the big epiphany for her was when she went home. I think it was a couple years after the first Prime Day. She had taken on a number of different roles, and she said that she found herself using Amazon's leadership principles on her mother. <laughs> they're, they're like the cru- the the sort of you know arduous ways that they talk to each other and and get to decisions, and that's when she realized that the culture had changed her a little bit in ways she didn't like. So you know, all that said, Amazon remains high on the list of of admired employees or places that you know when LinkedIn does a survey of places people want to work or enjoy working. Amazon, perhaps to Jeff Bezos's consternation now, appears high on those lists. He never wanted to create a country club. He told human resource employees that it should be challenging, it should be difficult. He wants people to do their best work and then move on. I think that accounts for some of the, the challenges, the cruelty in Amazon's culture. It's also been effective and it attracts a certain kind of person. So I, I think it's a little bit of a, it's, it's hard to characterize easily or, or simplistically. I think it's 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 complex and it's tough and that's by design and that attracts some people. And then after a couple of years or even after the first visit, it repels them. Okay. How many people are on the S team? You're, you're challenging me now because they keep adding to it, but I want to say it's about 24 people right now and it's as big as, as it's ever been. And that's in part because Amazon has continued to, to expand and they've got members there who represent Amazon fashion and technical engineers on, on, the, on AWS who are members of, of the S-Team. Um, there's a, the, uh, Mike Hopkins, Prime Video is on the S-Team now. But in part, it's also because this was a lily white and male crew for a very long time. And quite rightfully, I think the employees at Amazon and some of the shareholders and some of the outside observers, you know, made the point that Amazon needs to modernize. And as with many things, Bezos kind of got the message, but got it a little late. And he started to, you know, really add to the diversity uh, of that leadership team. Now, let's talk about the document, six pages. That's not short. Okay, someone wrote a lot of papers in college and is a writer now. To what degree are these, let's say I had to do one, to what degree do I have to write something on an A level, both in content and style? And, you know, what's the require? how much time do people put into this? I mean, if you have a public company, it's not a direct analogy. You know, they're, they're managing the street. It's a huge job in addition to doing the regular job is producing these six-page reports similar. You've put your finger on why I think the culture can be so enervating to to many people. The documents take a lot of time. That's often work that moves into the night or the weekends. They're also really collaborative. It's a collaborative process. It's not like an employee writes one and and then they 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 go and are reviewed in a leadership meeting. These are deliberated over. They're edited. They're revised ad nauseum. I described the the process of revisions during Alexa with even Bezos weighing in and a kind of perpetual tug of war in these documents about what Alexa would do. So in a way. It's not just an end product that's presented at a meeting, but it's very much part of the deliberative process, right? Figuring out what a new product or service is going to do is in part, they hash it out over the writing of these documents. And these are edited and revised and aggregated throughout the organization as they pass up, particularly during the the operating uh, reviews, the biannual review sessions, OP1 and OP2 during the year. 
And probably by the time something is presented to the senior leadership team, it's destroyed at least, you know, one team's private life for <laughs> the period of many weeks and been revised a million times. So it's it's core to how Amazon works. It's peculiar. I know a lot of executives who have left and tried to bring it to other companies with mi- mixed success. And I don't know. I think it's the way that Bezos has kind of trained himself and his leadership team to process information. But I'm not so sure it's kind of how naturally the rest of us might might do it. Now, you also portray in the book that uh, Bezos has a Jobsian personality to a degree, that he will make a snap judgment, say negative things, not worry about the reaction on a personal level, that he's evolved a little bit. What's going on there? So in the everything store, I think I think I really write I think I, I'm capturing Bezos 1.0 a little bit. And and that is in large part the person you describe, just withering feedback to employees. Did I take my stupid pills today? Or <laughs> um is this the A team? Where did the A team go? Just, you know, he had a he had a way, particularly when he got impatient. And I flash back to that in Amazon Unbound. I have an episode that I believe happens around 2007, where he's reviewing a document that has a mathematical error in it. And he, he, he identifies the error and he says, if I can't trust this number, I don't know why I can trust anything in this document. And he rips it in half and throws it down the conference room table and walks out. So there's Bezos 1.0. My sense is that either he got leadership assistance or else just realized that he really couldn't do that anymore. That with his stature inside the company, with his public profile, perhaps with modernizing norms around around management, that that wasn't really going to be tolerated. And I think Bezos 2.0 was equal measures, inspiring and intimidating. Certainly the end result of motivating employees was the same. He, he still, I have a couple episodes in the book, will walk out of a meeting when he's not satisfied. But Bezos 2.0, I think, was a little more circumspect with some of his negative negativity. Now, that's not to say at Blue Origin, a space company, which is, has lagged uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk's company quite a bit, he doesn't show flashes of that. But my sense from talking to innumerable people was that he, de- he doesn't really unleash it in the way perhaps you know, you're associating with Steve Jobs. Okay. You described the first thing they do in these S meetings is they read the document Reading when other people there makes one very self-conscious. Do they literally read it from beginning to end, or is it just there and they reference? And how much time does it take or is allotted for everybody to read it? They sit there in meditational silence, reading it until everybody's done. Then they go, if it's an ST meeting, they'll go around the room and Bezos, and I presume Andy Jassy soon, speaks last. And the discussion ensues. But they read it. They read the thing, which is, right, incredible. It's six pages long. It seems like it could take a while. But oftentimes, that's what they do. And by the way, Bob, uh, Bezos brought that to the Washington Post. And when the senior leadership team there uh, convenes with Bezos, they'll present him with a document. Now, my impression was with the Post meetings that he was reading those beforehand, which maybe made their time a little bit more efficient. But that is not always the case. And at Amazon, certainly, they sit there in silence reading. Okay, let's go to the warehouses. Let's first talk about practical. You know, I'm at a distance. You're right there in the belly of the beast. It seems to me that certain warehouses were created and certain machinery was installed 
which were then abandoned, repurposed. Do I have that right? In terms of, do you mean the the actual physical machinery, the culture? The, no, the physical. Well, no, I I, I think that um, I mean the, the the Amazon warehouses have evolved quite a bit. They've become somewhat automated over the years. Amazon bought a robotic system called Kiva back in 2012. Those have been rolled out, but. When I in the in the time span where I start this book, 2012, Amazon still only has a couple dozen fulfillment centers around the country. Now it has north of 800 fulfillment centers, sortation centers, transportation hubs. This company and the, and the operations network has sprawled out in every direction. So you know part of the reason that Amazon's tax burden is so low, by the way, is because they're bought buying all this new equipment and then it's depreciating and, and Amazon's writing that off on their taxes. So it is, um, you know, it's it's a unique fulfillment network. They keep adding to it and changing it, tweaking it, bringing in the robotics is one of the la- latest changes, spawning a transportation network so that it's not UPS or the post office delivering packages, but it's Amazon vans and Amazon trucks on the highway. That's another change. So it's 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 pretty fresh. And I think it's also pretty unique. And I think one of the major vectors of growth for Amazon is going to be, you know, not only delivering more of their packages, but one day maybe offering that as a service to other companies. Let Amazon be your FedEx and deliver a package. Okay. Now we had a movie that won best picture. How many people saw it is another debatable issue, but I saw it and it was an excellent picture depicting the life of a warehouse person at Amazon. So what you say in the book is a lot of that has been automated. So the people are not running around, but they're getting repetitive use injuries. You also said there was a policy where kind of like GE, the least performing people are are cut off. Then there's issues of uh, compensation. What is the status of work in the warehouses today? Well, the the, st- the status of work is um, it, it's still a a um, a position that is is sought after in many parts of the world. Amazon's one of the fastest growing employers. It's now the second largest employer in in the U.S. after Walmart. It's the the wage Amazon has has raised it in part because of criticism. It's it's fifteen dollars an hour in, in most places, seventeen dollars an hour in, in some, and so comparatively uh, against other kinds of warehouse work, you know Amazon is seen as a, a employer of choice, and I, I think we saw that a little bit in Bessemer, Alabama, where employees voted against a union. Now we'll see if the the National Labor Relations Board overturns that because of some of Amazon's conduct, but. The workers voted pretty definitively not to join the union. We could get back to what that means. But, you know, all, all that said, I, I think that the the depiction in Nomadland, I thought was was accurate. It was, it was kind of criticized for being too nice to Amazon, but there was something about it that resonated with me that, you know, this was seasonal work. There was no job security. It was very transactional. You know, the, the character was coming in there over the holidays. There was a sense of camaraderie but also a real sense of melancholy and isolation in that work. Um, and, and look. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I mean, they didn't have a villainous, you know, manager firing the Francis McDormand character, but there was something about it I thought that was quite sad, when, particularly when you combined it with, with the rest of her life. So I think that, to me, sort of captures it. You know, these vast facilities that have employees, but, you know, the, the work is drowned out by a chorus of conveyor belts and automation. Uh, the workers are really managed... In, in large part by algorithm that's monitoring everything they do, that's putting them on performance improvement plans that if, if their work suffers, you know, managers that will pipe up if they're taking overly long bathroom breaks. And, and so look, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's difficult work. I don't, you know, I, I think it's, it's highly valued by people whose, whose op- economic opportunities are otherwise limited. And it's probably, you know, remarkable, you know, it's probably good for them that there there is opportunity in parts of the country where the manufacturing base really has declined. But I do think that Bezos recently has understood that the, you know, the company is getting a bad image because of some of the testimonies about this work and the quality of the work. And that's why he has talked about addressing personally the ergonomic issues around standing in one place and servicing the robots and and the other other things that people talk about hopefully we will see amazon being more mindful about things like breaks and mandatory overtime um yeah and and so like i think i think the company realizes that there's a lot of room for improvement and that its public image in large part might depend on whether they can really get on top of that issue so you mentioned Bessemer, Alabama, and you talked about the unionization effort and how it failed. But being such a large company, a lot of the questions permeating America, you wonder to what degree they'll be focused on Amazon, there will be change. Their last mile delivery trucks, that's all contractors. This has been a big issue in terms of uh, Uber and Lyft. 
So to what degree do you think there's going to be change, which will represent change in America or will continue to head in this direction? I think that the Biden administration is recognizing the tech companies have gotten away with something here, being able to to use to use one of the technical terms in vogue now, fisher their their workplaces to employ you know to to have an employment contract with their white collar workers with some of their their fulfillment center workers but then to basically um outsource some of the some of the you know the the harder things the things that the company doesn't want liability over you know uber with drivers certainly you know apple does it with janitors cafeteria workers and amazon has done it has created a fissured workplace with uh, its drivers those are those are contractors. They're employed by delivery service providers. When they get into accidents, Amazon kind of throws its hands up. At, at the same time, they are driving in vans that have the Amazon Prime swoosh uh, arrow on them. They have Amazon uniforms. And in, in some cases, there are cameras in, in their automobiles run put there by Amazon uh, run by Amazon algorithms that are monitoring their performance and their safety record. So Amazon wants all the elements of control over this workforce and really none of the liabilities and the responsibilities for for maintaining them. There's a, a professor at Brandeis University uh, named David Weil who wrote a book called The Fissured Workplace and who's really done a lot of, of work in this area. And I, I believe he either was nominated or currently is a member of the Biden administration, or at least was being considered for a role. And I, I think the clear message here is that the, the the Biden administration wants to take a look at this and reevaluate whether these companies should have more responsibility. And certainly some of the, the legal rulings around Uber that we've seen in the U.S. and in, in the United Kingdom suggest that judges are beginning to view that relationship a little more skeptically. Now, one of the uh, discussions in your book is about the last mile problem and faster delivery. People pay approximately $120 for Prime to get two-day delivery. Now it's all about one-day delivery, and then something you can get in hours. Now, this is convenient. Do you believe this actually drives sales, and what does Amazon believe? To what degree is there a focus on this issue? I think historically, fast delivery has always has always shown up in the numbers and been meaningful for Amazon's customers. But I will I will argue that maybe it's less so now. So in in the early days when Amazon devised Prime in, in 2005, guaranteeing two-day shipping, allow people to pay once for it and then and then feel like they would get things promptly really made a big difference. And Prime locked people in, made them big Amazon spenders, and really contributed to some of the amazing growth we've seen since then. But as I mentioned, Amazon's gone from a dozen or so fulfillment centers to hundreds and hundreds. And there's one not far from where I'm sitting, and there's probably not one not far, Bob, from where you're sitting. And what what that means is that two-day or one-day delivery promise, it, it really doesn't mean that much anymore. You might be getting your packages from Amazon pretty quickly, regardless of whether you're a Prime member. So I suspect that's one of the reasons why they're pivoting so hard now to content and and not just buying MGM, but spending eleven billion dollars in two thousand twenty to to either license or create video. Basically, Prime was a a shipping club, and now it's becoming a kind of all access content club. And so, yeah, shipping to answer your question was important, but I think it's it's almost something that people are now go Amazon customers are going to take for granted because those fulfillment centers and distribution hubs are now all over the country. 
Let's talk about the store itself. First, let's talk about the actual image, what you actually see. There's a plethora of advertising, which I find very confusing. Can you give us the history of rise of advertising on the site? It's really interesting, and I, I devote a, a chapter to it in the book, and I call the chapter The Gold Mine in the Backyard because it was there all along, and, and for many years, Bezos didn't, want to, didn't seem to want to rate it. So probably about 15 years ago, they start very carefully putting banner ads on the site, and Bezos comes to the S team with a list of all the product categories that he doesn't want to touch. And that's things like alcohol and financial instruments and pharmaceuticals. He just says, no way, not interested. And it, it basically reveals a kind of underlying skepticism in, in, you know, basic advertising and in the ways in which companies get advertising. So, of course, and that's with salespeople and, and staffs and Amazon hire salespeople, but they always constrain its growth. And they're just not interested in that kind of revenue or really in cluttering up the site with ads. And for many years, Amazon is, analysts are speculating, why doesn't Amazon get into advertising more significantly? And the turning point is when they discover what Google had pioneered a decade before, putting ads in search results. And Amazon starts at the bottom of the search results page, moves them to the side, and eventually Bezos decides that he will let sellers and brands compete to get the top ad on, on the on the search results page. And that is the gold mine in the backyard. It unlocks a tremendous opportunity. I would argue that it actually depreciates, I think as you're referring to, the customer experience a little bit, the search Terrible. results page. Yeah, but and and actually they see that in the test results. They see that it's going to lower the customer's um, success rate in getting what they want. But Bezos explicitly makes a decision that the bounty of this revenue is going to be worth any decrease in the customer experience because that is a whole fuel that he can use to go invest in Hollywood, create new devices, pioneer new product categories, or disrupt new industries. And they, they make the decision. And right now, Amazon search results are less a taxonomy of useful results and more a very merchandise page of, of pay-to-play advertisements and Amazon's own private label products. And that's a decision they made. I would argue it wasn't very customer-centric. But I think last quarter, Bob, it was like $6 billion was in the other category on their on their income statement where they hide advertising revenues. And, and it is one of the fastest growing parts of the company right now. Now, let's talk about third-party sellers, you know, how they came up with that. Now, all the rules and constraints in the compete, competition from China. They, they celebrate the beginning of their marketplace business as starting in 2000, but it really was this dusty repository of used items for almost a decade after that. And it was when Bezos was sort of casting about for another leader, feeling like they hadn't achieved very much with the marketplace. And he was asking executives, how would you bring a million sellers onto this platform? And that's actually a really interesting and, and revealing question because there's no way you can do that hand to hand. It gets back to the salesperson point. You can only build a self-service system that where, where sellers can go and sign up and list their wares on, on an Amazon product page and start selling to Amazon's customer base tomorrow. So that was like the intuition build a self-service platform when, where any seller can basically go and sign up. And then a couple of things happened. Well, that, that took off. It was very effective. It minted a whole generation of successful sellers in, in the West. 
But then another thing happened, which is Alibaba started to expand outside China. And a, a little startup called Wish.com started to engage in a kind of geographical arbitrage where they were allowing Chinese sellers very close to the factories, or in some cases, the factories themselves, to sell abroad. And Bezos, who never wants to be outflanked, essentially looked at his senior executives and said, you guys are on this, right? And Amazon went to China, almost literally, they started sending teams of executives there, and they extended those self-service platforms into China, translating for Mandarin, and allowed sellers in China to list their wares on Amazon globally. They consolidated their merchandise in in in, in giant freight yacht uh, uh, ships. They moved it across the country. They stored it in their fulfillment centers, Amazon did, and they offered these products to sale to their customers. And it was an explosion of selection. It was a proliferation of bizarre brands that no one's ever heard of. It was a lot of low price stuff. Generally, it really, I think, fueled like the Amazon machine and contributed to a lot greater selection and, and higher sales, but it also introduced all kinds of chaos to Amazon. And it's it's apparent every time you search for something, um, you know, not just the the no-name brands or the the shenanigans with reviews. But a lot of fraud, a lot of counterfeit, a lot of fake reviews, some real disasters uh, like the exploding hoverboards that were that went in the news a couple of years ago where people were buying these hoverboards with lithium ion batteries at Amazon and they were they were catching fire when plugged in and burning down people's homes. And that is still those cases are still winding their way through the court system. So in a very Amazon or a very big tech company like way. They started creating new systems to address some of the unintended consequences, and these are like anti-counterfeiting tools and and tools to preserve the sanctity of the review system. But they unlocked a lot of that chaos that they now have to address by creating a self-service global marketplace that became international. And really, it it was almost like pure unadulterated globalization (laughs) in terms of its complete tilting of the of the e-commerce playing field okay but ultimately these products come from china and western sellers people in the united states start bitching they can't compete on price and then there becomes a whole issue that amazon is caught in the middle of that you address in the book i i went back i i was trying to figure out how to take the temperature of this massive seller community and there's no way you can pull them all and and Opinions vary. And there's a lot of happy sellers. Then there's a lot of economic opportunity on Amazon right now. In fact, one recent trend are these these companies that are buying up a lot of sellers and, and rolling them up to create bigger entities. But I did think it'd be interesting if I went back to every seller who was mentioned in Jeff Bezos's shareholder letter over the years, who were sort of celebrated as as success stories. And so I did that, I think, going back to around 2010. And they had all become embittered. They had all they had all lost their enthusiasm. One guy compared it to being invited over for Thanksgiving dinner only to realize that you're the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great quote. And what it suggested to me, again, because there are happy Amazon sellers, was that this is a a playing field, a frontier that is changing so rapidly that yesterday's winners are not are are sometimes today's losers that you have to constantly reinvent yourself in in much the same way that Amazon does if you want to be successful on Amazon. And, you know, you have sellers that were devoted to single product categories like paddle boards, and they did a great 
great business on Amazon for for a couple of years. And then when the marketplace globalized, you know, they're getting their supply from a Chinese manufacturer. So it kind of makes sense that that manufacturer, someone very close to it, would say, why are we going through a middleman in the United States? Here's the opportunity to go direct. And they do that. And the middleman is, is disrupted. And so that is a common experience on Amazon. They really do celebrate the, the Super Bowl ads are all about the lights turning on in the middle America woodworking shop, you know, where an entrepreneur is pursuing his or her dreams on Amazon, where the reality of it, I think it's a little different. I think that it's really now tilted in favor of the entrepreneurs, the businesses that are in, in low wage, low tax countries, very close to manufacturers who have some of the advantages, I think, uh, that Amazon is availing uh, to, to these countries like, like China, where re- they really are in, they feel like they're in competition with the Alibabas and wishes of the world, and they're trying to capture that global supply. Now, Amazon keeps changing the rules, tightening the screw. As we sit here, D.C. is cracking down, saying that uh, if you sell on Amazon, you can't sell cheaper elsewhere. You know, what do we know? The government, especially when it comes to tech, it's always a few steps behind. You know, is Amazon just going to continue to get away with this behavior or is something going to change? Well, let me break this specific case down a little bit. So this is the... the um Attorney General of Washington, D.C., and he's basically uh, putting his finger on um, what's what they call in the business like most favored nation clauses in, in the agreements between Amazon and sellers. And what Amazon tells sellers is you can't go to Walmart or your own website or Target and list for lower a lower price than you're listing for on Amazon. And by the way, I, I'm pretty sure Walmart and other retailers do that as well. And, and Amazon has kind of backed away from that in the pa- over the past few years, but they still implement it in some, in some non-subtle ways. If they go and find a product elsewhere t- for cheaper, they're going to pull you from the search results. You're, it's going to be harder to buy. And so they really are implement, or they're implementing the same techniques. Now, and, and one thing that we should just say, so people understand it, is that all these retail sites are scraping each other. They have automated software. Amazon is looking at Walmart all the time and vice versa, ad nauseum. All these companies have kind of binoculars trained, algorithmic binoculars trained on each other to see where prices are lower. And what the AG is saying is that, you know, that is in effect a forcing a higher price, Amazon to to. Amazon's forcing a higher price elsewhere and not allowing its sellers to to discount elsewhere. Look, historically, that was legal. And I think the question is, as Amazon gets bigger and accumulates power, uh, as it commands an ever larger share of, um, of, of e-commerce, does it start to kind of look bad? And as I said, Amazon backed away from a form of it, but still does it in, in some quieter ways. I think ultimately my guess, Bob, is that they, they probably stopped doing that, you know, just because of the optics. I don't think this antitrust case is existential in any way. It's about one particular form of conduct, something that everybody kind of historically has done, but which Amazon doing tends to tends to look bad. And I think ultimately that they settle this case. Yes. And if we expand this and go back to your first book with the example of diapers.com, if for whatever reason, Amazon wants to be in your business, it appears they'll just put you out of business. Or they said to Zappos, no, these are historical issues at this point, you know, either sell or compete. 
and forgetting that they ultimately got out of the diapers business after selling, after buying the diaper business, a lot of third-party sellers say, well, if I have a big business selling batteries, selling anything, they're going to look at my data. They're just going to make it so they win. And do you believe this is conscious? And this bleeds into the other issue. You know, at, at the street level, they say that Amazon makes more money selling third-party products than it does sell its own products. So what is the viewpoint of Amazon on all this stuff? Well, let me let me take a couple of pieces there. I mean, the, the Quincy story of now 10 years ago, which I tell in the Everything Stories, is interesting. Amazon was in hot competition with the company that owned diapers.com, discounted the product until everyone was kind of losing money, forced Quidzy into a sale, bought the asset. I think they feared, like Zappos, this could be one of those companies that could be acquired by Walmart or funded by venture capital in Silicon Valley and become really a full-featured competitor. And instead, they bought it. And then they allowed it to run independently and then eventually closed it down. They did not get out of the diapers business, though. Diapers, they still sell tons of diapers on Amazon.com. I they thought do that they closed their, that down. Just you know, I'm not, they, they closed yeah. down diapers.com, right? They bought diapers.com. They allowed it to run independently. And eventually they did shut down that website. But on Amazon.com, not only can you find all manners of Pampers and and Huggies and and Amazon Amazon's own private label products. They they do a brisk business in diapers. They just don't have a separate website anymore. For example, Zappos is still Zappos.com. You can still go and buy sneakers there. You can also buy sneakers on Amazon. So they sometimes buy these other companies to uh, to. I think to close off future opportunity for them, right? And and look, I, I think that the government has looked at that. The House Antitrust Subcommittee devoted paragraphs to that, and so, of course, my book was was my first book was cited there. The way in which they Amazon conducted itself back then to pursue rivals, I think, was was extraordinary. They cannot get away with that anymore. It's a it's a much larger and more scrutinized company. And in fact, I I actually don't think acquisitions like like uh, Quidzy or Zappos, if they were doing those types of acquisitions today, they would necessarily get them through the FTC. MGM is a different matter, which we could talk about. Um, but then you talked about then you then you talked about um, the the marketplace vendors on Amazon.com and whether Amazon peeks at their data to put out their own private label products. And my book shows that they have you know that that managers did that. There was a policy against it. As we talked about, they did it anyway because they were trying to meet their goals. And Amazon has to answer some really hard questions about that. Again, they are now under the microscope. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some very strict policies, if the cookie jar is kind of nailed shut right now in terms of access to that third-party data. You know, it doesn't excuse the conduct that happened in the past. Amazon likes to say that, well, if you go into a Costco, it's all Kirkland. If you go into a Walmart, their private label brands are predominant. And actually, private label and Amazon's a small percentage of their overall sales. It's actually quite prominent in search results. So it's another thing that Amazon's going to have to answer for, the fact that they are quite explicitly in competition with their own, not just their own brands, but their own sellers. They're a platform, they're a retail store, and then increasingly, they're, they're a white label manufacturer. Because a lot of those products, and I think a large amount of their sales growth is coming from private label.
You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Let's talk about AWS, Amazon Web Services. Uh, it starts, it's the only game in town. They price it relatively reasonable. There's first mover advantage. To the degree people are paying attention, all of a sudden, under the Trump administration, the Defense Department gives a huge contract to Microsoft. Then it's reevaluated. Then Microsoft gets again. The most recent story is they might split it up. But what is the future of the web services industry and Amazon's place in it? It's incredibly competitive now. Um, Amazon is in the lead, but Microsoft is nipping at its heels. Google's a little bit farther behind. And then you have IBM and, and Oracle and innumerable other players. These are the largest technology companies in the world. And it, of course, Microsoft by market cap is larger than Amazon. So I think there's obviously tremendous growth in, in cloud computing. The way that, you know, governments have em embraced it and then the, 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 sc the scramble for, for contracts like the Jedi contract, which uh, Amazon lost to Microsoft during the Trump years, but which might be getting reawarded soon, depending on, on, on the legal outcome of Amazon's protest. This is the direction of enterprise software and enter enterprise computing. And Amazon's been a, a pioneer, but it's no longer the only one. So if, if you're asking about you know, a, a, a legislator's or a regulator's ability to make a case that Amazon has a dominant position in cloud computing, I think that right now that's, there's a pretty weak case there. What, what's more interesting are maybe some of the very opaque ties between AWS and Amazon retail. And that's really not all that well understood. And it's something that the House Antitrust Subcommittee last year expressed frustration with in their ultimate report. Like, how do, why are these the units together, how do they nurture each other? 
actually a lot of people internally don't even quite know, but I suspect that they really help each other, that retail plays a wholesale price for, for AWS, and AWS has this available beta tester for new services that allows it to scale very quickly, and that this has you know, a, a been a very productive union for both sides of the company, and that Bezos and Andy Jassy would, would not willingly separate them. Let's go into entertainment. Yes, this became a benefit with Prime. So this is a different model from the competitor, certainly Netflix, which is, you know, owns its own vertical. So what do we know? The policy is different. They'll allow almost anything on their site. Their interface is not attractive. They don't have huge success, although it's hard to tell. Also adding in the music thing, once you start bundling, they are beating the $10 price that other companies have. They don't, re- they don't really break out a lot of information, but is it just a matter of time till they get entertainment right, or really they don't have the right people in place? You know, I, I, would, I would say that I'm not so sure I agree with the premise. You know, Amazon actually, in a very typical way, has a lot of ways to win. And and we look at Prime Video, and I totally agree that the menu that shows up on the screen is sometimes bizarre, and what am I looking at, and how, why can't I find anything? And the, the original, original content that they've produced from their Hollywood division has more misses than hits. There, there have been some great things like Fleabag and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Transparent. That's kind of niche programming. But then Jack Ryan maybe has done a little better and uh, The Boys I, I found entertaining. And then they some great movies. Um, I love The Sound of Metal. I don't know if you saw that one, Bob. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so great. good. Borat 2 was horrendous, and great. yet somehow people watched it. I, I couldn't watch it. Oh, I, you uh, know, I'm not a huge fan of his, but I where he was going on an intellectual level, I just okay. thought it was brilliant. Okay, so, but here's, here's the point I was trying to make. Amazon doesn't – that's part of their strategy. They also have the set-top box, the Fire TV stick, probably one of the most successful streaming products alongside Roku. And then you look at Disney+. Plus. And you look at Netflix, and I actually think elements of Apple TV+, Plus, if not the whole thing, those run on AWS. Amazon alone in this scramble to create an entertainment future is, is operating at every level of the stack and succeeding at a, at a lot of those places. So it has a lot of advantages here. It's got a lot of resources and cash that it's devoting. It spent $11 billion on, on Prime Video in 2020. Now they're paying for, for MGM. So they're going to deepen their catalog and they're getting access, you know, depending on how you view the MGM library, to a lot of IP and potential for franchises and spinoffs. So I, I don't think that Amazon's foray into Hollywood has been really, we could say it's been unsuccessful. In fact, in a lot of ways, they're pioneers, maybe in the flasher, flashier aspects of it. They've had a checkered history, but I do think it's a matter of time. The resources that this company is able to bring to bear, the deep pockets, the fact that they really kind of don't explicitly charge for Prime Video, that it's wrapped up into this nebulous idea of Prime, which includes uh, shipping and includes access to music and Kindle. People don't really think about what they're paying for this as in the same way that they might for Netflix every month. So I think Amazon actually has a lot of tools at its disposal to ultimately really succeed. Now, if you look at the purchase of MGM, 
you know, this is a whole separate issue, the percent perception of Amazon's marketplace share relative to the reality. But under conventional, as employed in the last couple of decades, uh, antitrust laws, it's hard to see a problem with the purchase of MGM. But it does appear that they overpaid for it. But it's just that these companies, just like Microsoft buying Skype and Nokia, they have so much damn money that it just doesn't make a difference. Well, I mean, Senate, we're, we're hearing Senator Klobuchar and, and other politicians grumble about this, but ultimately the FTC or the DOJ is going to ask, is this limiting, is this deal limiting competition? And when you look at, at the streaming landscape that we just talked about, there are lots of alternatives in terms of studios and content. MGM is not a big player. So I think it's really hard to make the argument that this deal is anti-competitive. I think Amazon will get it approved despite probably a hostile political environment. Um, and then the second part of your question, which has now promptly escaped me. Well, the perception of uh, Amazon in terms of market share. People are always saying Amazon is the enemy, but then they trot out statistics, what percentage of retail they have and all these other things to try to prove that, no, that's not true. Right. It, critics are trying to make the case that Amazon is a monopolist. And, and the challenge there is that it operates in such large markets. And so we talked about cloud computing and, and the very big competitors it has with, with Google and Microsoft. And then in, in retail, when you look at you know, Walmart and, and Target and Costco and the large supermarket chains, it's going to be tricky for regulators or lawmakers to write law or to, to make judgments that apply just to Amazon that don't apply across the board and that don't end up maybe even augmenting Amazon's power. I'll give you an example. If you were to say tomorrow that retailers weren't allowed to sell private label products or compete with their own vendors, that would cripple a company like Costco, probably probably a Walmart as well, certainly the drugstore chains. And Amazon might actually get more profitable because suddenly uh, those vendors uh, or marketplace sellers that found their listings eclipsed by Amazon products would be back there paying fees and advertising to get in front of customers. So I, I you know, Bezos says he welcomes scrutiny. I think, and obviously they're deploying quite a large lobbying force. I think there are lots of outcomes that end up solidifying Amazon's power, you know, rather than reducing it. And then to the original point, it's not a monopoly in the monopolist in the traditional sense. So I think it's going to be challenging for regulators to make that case. Let's talk about hardware. They had the phone, a uh, fire phone disaster. You mentioned the fire stick successful. You have the fire tablet. You have the uh, Kindle. You have the Alexa hardware products. What do we know about Amazon? Traditionally, 1.0 is kind of crappy. And then they get it better. They never get it to the level of Apple, but they certainly get it to a serviceable level. Now, Amazon's Kindle is crippled by the Apple antitrust case. So when something like that happens at Amazon, is there a conscious, because, you know, uh, Bezos' philosophy was, we're going to lower prices, sell more books, we're going to blow this world up to the advantage of publishers, okay? So when they put a roadblock in, I mean, is the Kindle business, well, that's a business, and it'll run, but, you know, we're not focusing on that anymore. I feel like the Kindle is like the children from a for the child from a former marriage, right? That it, it was it was the center of it was the apple of his eye ten years ago, and now they have moved on. 
and the new kids are Alexa and uh, you know maybe the the um, the Echo Buds and this whole other ecosystem of products. So they th- it's it's interesting. Unlike Apple, which has this limited span of products that they cherish and nourish and keep updating. Yeah, they Amazon moves on, right? They they produce a lot of stuff. It's not to say they're not updating the Kindle, right, all, all the time or the Kindle Fire tablet, but you get the sense that it's a little bit of of an afterthought right now. The company tries a lot of things, a lot of strange things. Do, do you remember hearing about the the Halo wristband, which was reading people's moods, or the Alexa spectacles that I guess is maybe gathering some diagnostic data because it came from their healthcare group. And then you've got the Echo Buds. It's a, the, the second generation is out now. And I'm, it was just an example that's on my mind. This thing is brutally reviewed on Amazon itself. It's like at two and a half stars. And yet they they keep and of course people don't even know about it. It's an also ran to, to obviously Apple's product, and yet they keep iterating. It's like they're bullheaded in the forward momentum. And Prime Day is coming up next month, and I guarantee you Amazon will discount the heck out of this thing. And they you know they've got so many advantages, including including controlling the retail uh, outlet that they they kind of muscle their way to success. And we'll see if Amazon cares about the the Echo Buds in another ten years, or even Alexa for that matter. But you're you're right in which it's it's not a very refined strategy, right? They they try a lot of things. Do you remember the um, Alexa microwave? Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't heard much about that. Or there was an Alexa wall clock. Yeah, they they try a lot of things. They orphan some of them and they move on. Okay, talking about physical retail, we know from Warby Parker. You know, a lot of people, you can sell them the glasses by shipping to them, but a lot of people just want to try them on. So they open shops. How big a deal? I mean, I'm, first there's the Amazon stores. You know, they started sort of as bookstores where they have, ve- excuse me, very little inventory. Then they buy Whole Foods. Are they ever going to get this right? And you talk in your book about the uh, no cashier shopping and all the development that took. Is there a big play here or are they going to play around and move here too? There's a massive play, and they are moving here. Essentially, 90% of all retail is still conducted in physical stores. Bezos has known that forever. He always said he wanted Amazon to do it, open a store, but do something differently. And 10 years ago, they came upon this idea of putting cameras in the ceiling and sensors in the shelves and automatically charging people instead of having them wait in front of a cashier. And they have spent <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars on that. It could be the most expensive initiative in Amazon history. And they trialed them in these 7-Eleven stores where, by the way, the sandwiches are god-awful. And and it was seemingly unsuccessful. But what it was was a, basically a technology trial. And they've been, they've been iterating on it. And now we're seeing them stamp out full-size Amazon Fresh supermarkets with either the ghost store technology, the cameras and the sensors, or these dash carts where it's a shopping cart that you roll around and as you put a product in, it scans it and automatically charges you. So they think they have a novel way to enter physical retail. And I suspect we're at the very earliest stages of seeing a massive expansion where every shopping center, every every mall, every retail set of retail outlets in our communities are going to have at least one Amazon store of some kind. And then Amazon can use those as kind of fulfillment nodes, maybe to have people order and collect packages or maybe even a, like a, d- a delivery station in the in the back. 
as well as capturing that 90% of retail that happens in, in physical environments. So, no, I don't think they're giving up. They haven't made a lot of progress recently. But the fact that we're seeing more and more of those Amazon Fresh supermarkets tells me that we're still really at the beginning of this. Okay. You have the long history delineated in your book. I have to ask you. Does this ghost store scanning work or they just have built-in shrinkage? Because we all know at first, Siri is the example. Oh, great concept, doesn't work. But as time, Alexa's gotten better by the same token, can't have a conversation with it. Exactly. Yeah, no, you're right. Alexa's still a moron. And the it does seem like the tech companies always sort of overestimate the progress of, of their AI systems. And and it, no doubt that the, the ghost store is an example of that where they're they're mischarging or not understanding certain transactions. But instead of shrinkage, I think they've got secret cadres of of workers, maybe contract workers, probably overseas, who when there's a moment of ambiguity, will be reviewing the footage and making a manual determination. So I don't know the extent to which they still rely on that. That would be a worthy focus of follow-up. But um, I do think that I, I do know there were employees who were concerned early on that the ghost store wouldn't scale because they had these crews that had to monitor footage. Let's pull back the lens of the landscape. What do we know? The guy from Quidzy ultimately went to Walmart. During uh, COVID, Amazon posted amazing numbers. The most recent Walmart numbers are not that good. Let's just talk about the business it's in, which is online retailing. Will anybody ever compete? Certainly in, in, in the U.S. and in parts of Europe, it's hard to imagine who that would be. I mean, I, I do think there's room for competitors. I think Walmart's e-commerce business has, has been growing, as many have during the pandemic. But Amazon has such a tremendous head start. eBay was so mismanaged for so many years that, no, I, I, I think it's hard It's hard for anyone to get to that same scale. Now, companies like Shopify are showing, you know, have carved out tremendous pieces of it. And Shopify might be one of the best success stories of the past five years in, in the technology world. But then you leave you leave the U.S. And, and Europe, and you do find countries where Amazon struggled. You know, India, it's it's run headlong into a local competitor, Flipkart, that was acquired by Walmart, and then Reliance Industries, which seems to have the backing of the, of the Modi administration. And you go to different markets, and there's always this kind of nationalist champion. So I think, you know, in its oldest markets, Amazon has a little bit of a, a hammerlock. And you know, but but the world is large and it still has there's a lot of countries where Amazon is not even in. And there are a lot of countries where it's player number two or three. And to what degree is it first mover advantage and scale? And to what degree is it special sauce referencing what we did before with Bezos and whether that's, you know, dribbled down into the culture? Well, I mean, a- Amazon was very early in China and it, and it lost. It lost big and, and lost billions of dollars. So I don't necessarily think it's the first mover advantage has been important all around. But I I think you're asking, okay, about the keys to Amazon success in general. Yeah. Okay. So Amazon wasn't the first online store, but it was very early on. It was in large part Bezos taking advantage of the capital environment in the, in the late nineties and dreaming big and feeling like books, books were just the beginning and embracing you know, a kind of destiny, destiny is the everything store. And it was, yeah, it was Bezos betting big and basically sinking his profits into new product categories and being willing to rethink, completely rethink 
the operations arm and creating a warehouse network that was tailored not for regular retail, but for e-commerce and hiring the right people and being so public and bizarrely charismatic. These were all elements in the success story, as well as good timing. And then probably just some luck in terms of them raising money during at the very beginning of the dot-com bust that allowed them to navigate the, the shakeout when a lot of companies went out. But you know, you look at the constant reinvention of the company by Bezos, AWS, the Kindle, Alexa, now Prime Video. And and I think it's hard to avoid concluding that there's something about Bezos and his willingness to look around the next hill, change the company, bet his winnings again on a new product category, reinvest his ambition, his competitiveness, his savviness about technology that's been key to its success. Now, in the music business, a truly legendary manager is someone who does it twice. So what do we know? Bezos has built this. The guy who ran the Apple store for Steve Jobs, raging success, went to JCPenney, couldn't do anything. If we plucked Bezos out of Amazon and put him at another company that was struggling, would he be able to reinvent it? Is he a wonderkind? I think he has been in terms of amplifying and building on Amazon's advantages. And the closest that I can come to that hypothetical is Bezos at, at Blue Origin, the space company. Different company, different environment, different industry, different set of competitors. And I would argue he hasn't been very successful there. Now, in part, that might be because it hasn't really received a lot of his focus. He's been funding it, but he's been managing it from afar and in part, I think, sowing some dysfunction because of that choosing to who, who to lead the company and then kind of changing leaders halfway through, viewing Elon Musk competitively and then amplifying his ambition. So maybe it's a poor example, but I, I think it's a way of saying that the magic isn't as in broadly applicable, that in space and with Blue Origin, he hasn't succeeded in, in the same way, in, in at least the way you might think. Now, at the Washington Post, he took over a, a paper in decline and he really revived its fortune. So yeah, I, I think there's probably something that's broadly applicable about the Bezos management style, but the guy is spread very thin now, and I don't think he's given the, the care and attention to Blue Origin that it's required. Okay, you've been following the landscape for decades here. So what do we know? 20 years ago, it's all about hardware. Today, it's about software. Up until about 10 years ago, every month, if not more frequently, there was a new product whether it be hardware or software. That is not the case. We've had consolidation, such as we have the Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple. Maybe you can throw Microsoft in there. Being a seer, where's this all going? I think we're living in an age of oligopoly. I think that it's hard to evaluate these companies alone. They, you know, they they compete with each other, really not even on the margins, but in significant business uh, categories. And um, they, you know, because of their, their fierce competition with each other, you know, they, they're they moving quickly. They're, they're in competition for the best engineers. They're throwing elbows. I, I worry that it's blotting out a lot of the opportunity and entrepreneurial opportunity um, that's that's been so historic to America's success and the vibrancy of Silicon Valley. So, I, you know, it's we're entering a really interesting period where we have a presidential administration now that's committed to reviewing the conduct of these companies. I think we're going to see a lot more high-profile antitrust lawsuits against the big tech companies. 
it'll be interesting to see the government to grapple with their complexity. And it's all, of course, so fast moving. And, and these legal processes stretch out over many years. And these companies change every every year. So I don't know. I mean, I think I think it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to watch. But I see, you know, these big tech companies, in, you know, continuing to grow and in, in some ways probably sapping some of the uh, vibrancy from the economy and some of the opportunity for other companies. Now, we talk, is the internet mature? What I mean by that is if you can look at certain things, I'm a big skier, uh, music, et cetera. There's a, element, there's a craziness when it develops, and then you have a business, but it's relatively regimented and managed. You talk to other people, and they'll say, the power of the smartphone is so strong, computer in your hand, that the runway is incredibly long. So what's your viewpoint and what might we see on the horizon technically or with the Internet? I, I think it's probably the wrong move to bet against the Internet, right? It's, I mean, just in my professional career, I've seen the thing explode <laughs> over, over 25 years and showed no signs of, of slowing down. It does always seem like new kind of transitions or new technologies are around the corner. The smartphone gave us you know, a, a, a almost 10 years of, of, of runway. My last book was about Uber and Airbnb and how they basically built their businesses on, on the smartphone. Um, the fact is people are spending more time on their devices, on their computers, interacting with the world. You know, cloud computing feels like a, a change, a revolution in its infancy still. So I don't, I don't see any reasons to think that anything, any anything, any of our the slow creep into a, a technological society is slowing down. Okay, then drilling down a little bit more to your work directly. You work for Bloomberg, and what do we know? Uh, a lot of media companies have been hurt by the lack of advertising of during COVID. Bloomberg makes most of its money from its. Uh, quote machines and information machines that uh, brokers use. Bloomberg was a 360-degree news company. Then they refocus it to business. Bloomberg will last. But being in this publishing news industry, and I'll make it pretty broad, are physical magazines going to survive? Is there hope for local newspapers? I'm not asking for you to be optimistic, but... Where is it going there? Are we going towards a winner-take-all landscape in news, too? I'm extremely concerned about the the health and the future of local newspapers. I, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I grew up reading the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and it's where I really got my interest in news, that and, and reading Newsweek magazine, actually, which ended up being my first employer. And, you know, recently the sale of the of the Tribune Company assets to private equity and just the deteriorating health of local newspapers and media outlets and how that's ended up polluting the democratic process. It's really worrisome. And I don't see really, it's hard to be optimistic about that. You want, I mean, what Bezos has done with the Washington Post has been remarkable. And it would be great to see him or a billionaire like him pursue a kind of Carnegie-like philanthropy, you know, what Carnegie did with the libraries was it, it was Carnegie. I, I think. Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm not embarrassing myself with my history there. Uh, to to do something like that for local newspapers, and unfortunately, that that billionaire philanthropist is is not has not made him or herself known yet. And and meanwhile, newspapers are languishing. The business model is deteriorated, and the democratic process, I think, has been polluted because of that. 
as for magazines, you know, we're, we're still, I think, in now the second or third decade of a slow transition and prop, these properties have to become digital and they have to build events businesses and create new relationships with their, their, uh, their subscribers. And I think we've seen there have been remarkable examples of magazines. I'm gonna, just going to pick one, The Atlantic, that I think has really successfully made the transition. Business Week, I think, is another good example. It's now inside the Bloomberg empire. It it nourishes what we do at Bloomberg in so many different ways. But it's still a time of transition, and the old, the 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 physical ads and the actual subscriptions, of course. You know, the analog print subscriptions, as you would expect, have continued to deteriorate. That's not changing soon. So the magazines that are going to survive are going to have to really complete their their transition. Now, you've written two books on Amazon. What is your personal focus? What is the subject that you're putting paying attention to going forward? I mean, right now, Bob, I'm still locked in the Amazon jail. Uh, the book came <laughs> out. The book came out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about it. I... I don't actually see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of, I mean, the, the challenge with Amazon is they make news every single day or every single week. And, you know, it's, it's MGM or it's a shareholder meeting or it's something with the workplace or Bezos news. And so there, there is a near future for me of continuing to, to blab about Amazon and, and my books. But longer term, I run a tech team at, at Bloomberg. It's, I'm extraordinarily proud of it. It's, you know, we cover all the big tech companies and investors and trends. And so that gives me a great purview to kind of see all these changes in our society and our business landscape and try to find the stories I'm interested in. I have no idea what that is next. I, I have to kind of lick my wounds from, from this ordeal. And then hopefully I'll find something that, that interests me. Thanks so much, Brad. This has really been great. Thanks for taking the time to tell the story. Bob, it's been a pleasure. I also want to say for people, these are easily read books. They're written as stories. These are not hardcore business books where your eyes roll back into your head. And if you want to know what Amazon is doing, Brad literally is the guy, and these books are the definitive statements. I just want to emphasize, that's not hype. I've certainly read both of them. That's why I wanted Brad on the podcast. Till next time. This is Bob Lefset. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.